welcome back to the Fortune in Charge novel review. In this episode, we begin Chapter 4. We remain with Al Mercer Jr., though some years have passed. He's dropped out of college, now mowing lawns with his father's company, and delivering pizzas on the side as well. He has been in and out of rehabs and still has his addictive ways, as he remains close to Morrow and even sells drugs for him on occasion. In this chapter, I wanted to convey the dual nature of Al. He can become obsessive, evidence with his attempts to win over Tricia, yet also lackadaisical and uncaring. He has the capacity of working very hard, yet still overindulges in alcohol and drugs. In addition, he is regretful for how his lapses have affected his younger brother, Cody. Al knows Cody looks up to him, and he's sorry he can't be a better example for him, and intentionally keeps Cody at a distance. However, when focused on the actual work of the day, Al can be transformed almost to this zen-like state. He sees the art in mowing a lawn, and takes pride in the results of his landscaping efforts until Anna Tierney sharply disrupts his euphoria and berates him for not cleaning up properly last time, and the weeds she notices growing on her lawn. This is where our narrative paths first intersect. From Al's perspective, seeing how nice the Tierney house is, he is mad and confused that a person of such wealth should ever be so mean and condescending. He doesn't see any justification for how she treats working people like Al, and then we shift to Anna's perspective and are provided the reason why she acts in such a way. And it is Colin. Through the years of fighting for her son, she has adopted the constant defensiveness. She sees everyone as lazy or easily not fulfilling their job duties unless she keeps them on track. I'd say this is a very paranoid and untrusting way to be. But like Al to an extent, I wanted the challenge of taking a person who we might quickly judge and make them either sympathetic, or at least uh, that we have a better understanding of what made them the way they are. Inspiration. Where there is the fate versus free will element, um, I think the theme of nature versus nurture is fairly apparent in the novel as well. This doesn't necessarily just refer to how children grow up. It can also be a series of factors that force a change in personality. I think Anna is a good example of this. I had an experience with a person like Anna who was completely unhinged in this matter. Accusatory and aggressive for no reason, or only for the reason of making sure she wasn't being exploited. Obviously, I had a similar reaction as Al, confused and offended, but I also found it fascinating considering how a person got to be that way. Um, for Anna, I tried to show this logical transition. When she is young, first married to Nicholas, and they are thriving as a family, she is fun and easygoing. However, Colin forces her to change drastically. First out of guilt, but then these traumatic experiences where her son is maltreated. To have these two personalities, Al Jr. and Anna Tierney, intersect, I felt was crucial. I viewed them as two frustrated, suffering people, and when two people of similar experiences meet, it can be euphoric, but it can also be disastrous. Al keeps his cool in this instance, 
but it is an experience that will stay with him. A moment where he is truly unfairly criticized when he is actually working hard and doing the right thing. A seed that will grow for the remainder of the novel. Craft and Structure I saw Al Mercer as viewing himself as very strong and resilient, when in reality he is very fragile and at risk of self-imploding at any moment. Where I saw him at most risk was when he viewed himself as being genuine, deserving of what he is aiming for, or at least receiving something positive for his effort, and it not being fulfilled or the people or the world rejecting him instead. It is difficult for him to begin and stay down the right path, and when there is an obstacle on the path, he cannot handle it. He is fine when his free will yields the correct results, when it goes as planned. He is happy to use his will to maintenance the lawns and is glad to the positive effect of his will. However, when that will, will is not recognized or dismissed, when there is an outside force, fate in this logic, then he feels utterly defeated and uh, dives into chaos or apathy. Similarly, Colin is Anna's fate, a frustrating one that does not yield no matter her efforts. His growth is incremental or undetectable. So Anna, contrary to Al, digs in even deeper. She cannot significantly change Colin, so she directs the energy to anyone who crosses her path, his teachers and one-on-ones, but even people who perform services for it, be it plumber, mailman, or landscaper. They are people who she can control. They work for her, and she is their customer. So she believes she can press them, treat them, how she pleases. Chapter 4. Now you better be on your best behavior. I've worked hard to get into this neighborhood, and you're not going to screw it up. That is my name and your name on the side of the truck. No ganja smoking in the woods or anything like that. Just grass? Uh, yeah, just grass. The kind that you mow, smart guy. They sent him back to Friends Hospital in the summer between junior and senior year. After Friends, he straightened out for a while, maintained good grades, but Trisha. No matter how sweet he treated her or how well he behaved, she blew him off. He didn't deserve that. He started to follow her home after school until her dad threw him to the ground like a rag doll and cried, leave me alone. He called at night until the family got an answering machine and screened his calls and then blocked his number. And then finally changed their number when he called from payphones. She went to parties and got drunk and hooked up with other guys, but he refused to see all of that. In his mind, she was forever fixed as the quiet girl from physics class, the one who was good and could make him better. He was not particularly handsome, didn't have any real hobbies besides watching sports and playing poker, and was overly preachy about the dangers of drugs and alcohol. She was 18 and did not wish to be some pious housewife. She would be going to Penn State and she was ready to have a good time. Al got it in his mind that he could win her with gifts. If he was a big shot, she would pay attention to him again. He started working at Patrico's, taking orders and delivering pizzas on the weekends with Stu. In addition to getting paid hourly and tips, Al made extra money selling Stu weed or coke through Morrow. He enjoyed jamming out to Guns N' Roses or Metallica with Stu, or taking over-unders and prop bets on football and basketball. 
He eventually had enough money to buy Trisha a, real, a nice diamond necklace, which he put back in his school bag when he wasn't paying attention during American history class. From there, he started using again, now elevating to cocaine to get through shifts with Stu and Xanax when he couldn't stop thinking about Trisha, ultimately drawing the conclusion that his rejection was due solely to the acne on his face. After they sent him to Horsham Clinic, he began living with his dad permanently and miraculously graduated from a tiny credit recovery high school in Frankfurt called Helping Hands. He went to Shippensburg for a year, but the partying kept him in constant trouble with the university, and his low GPA led to him formally being asked not to return to school for his sophomore year. Now, during this listless summer, he was mowing lawns with his father and brother, womanless with no future. Do you think dad will let me go to Woodstock, Cody asked, as they unloaded a mower out of the tailgate? No chance. Come on, he has to. I mean, you're going. Exactly. You might as well be going with Satan himself. But I've been so good, working every day for him. I got honors last year at North, and I've been working hard at Crew. Why wouldn't they let me? Dad, maybe, but no chance with Mom. You're her last shot anyway. Cody passed him the weed whacker and hedge clippers from the truck. I don't drink or smoke or anything. I just want to see the bands. Ha. Huh. Well, that's one thing that terrifies Mom about you. My one bad influence that got through the cracks. I only listen to it in my headphones, and I hide the cases because they have the parental advisory stickers on them. I didn't say I wanted to see Limp Biscuit or Rage Against the Machine, just Dave Matthews Band and stuff. She won't let you, and she won't let you because she knows you wouldn't just do it anyway. Cody was only over a year younger than Al, but it could have been 12 years. Al knew their mother would not permit Cody to go to Woodstock 99, but Al did not want him to go either. Al never let him tag along, and not because he didn't like him. They were practically the same person, liking the same movies, music, and sports. But it was because Al loved his brother. He wanted Cody to stay good, to stay pure, and not to go down the paths and circles that he had traveled. That was what he was often most regretful of when he relapsed, setting the wrong example for his brother. Those drugs and alcohol, prior to any intervention, were also responsible for all of the missed memories. The Phillies games they were supposed to attend on cloudless Saturdays when Al could not rise out of a hangover stupor. Cody's crew races that Al forgot about and opted to score from Morrow by the Inferno. And day trips to Baltimore or New York that he simply could no longer afford after blowing his money on Xanax. Cody would be upset, but he could not stay upset for long. He had this immense well of forgiveness and somehow still admiration for his brother. Cody was a remarkable kid, and it saddened Al just looking at him, knowing how he caused that wide-eyed face such pain. The brothers mowed the lawns of Morrell Park diligently, serene in the monotony of the work. It was one of the few gifts of life when the task was so clear. Pushing the mower in a direct pattern, attempting to keep it as straight of a line as possible, delicately guiding the weed whacker along the edges, holding that pulsating machine as firm as possible tearing up the old dead grass and replacing it with the good seeds, spraying the weeds with herbicide and returning to the lawn the next week to see the grass greener and healthier, and the new seedlings already growing tall. They were proud to see the neighborhood as beautiful and that it was from their hands. It was an art, but it was also hard work, especially on a sweltering day like this in July. Cody was on the corner house on Crestmont Avenue, and Al moved on to the fourth house on the block. All of the houses in Morrell Park were well-maintained and reflected opulence, but this house stood out at the pinnacle of all of the others. Not an inch of moss or dirt caked on the burgundy bricks of the two-story structure, 
not a speck of grime on the bay window with elegant window boxes of daisies and geraniums. A baroque chestnut door with a lion knocker, an intricately floral beveled glass window. A driveway smoothly paved up into a two-car garage. Black composite dog-eared fence that subtly hid the groomed tomato and basil garden. Al took his time in mowing the lawn, using discretion in mowing around the granite stepping stones that led to the gazebo and surrounding rose bushes, and made sure not to kick back any grass onto the wraparound porch or statue of the Virgin Mary. It was a house of worth, and he tried to give it the reverence it deserved. As he was running the weed whacker along the driveway, the woman came out. She appeared to be in her mid-sixties, wore a purple bathrobe, hair pulled back by a bandana, and no makeup on her face. She was thin and had the relic of a former vivaciousness and beauty, but the heavy bags under her eyes and thick eel-like veins running down her parchment-skinned arms and neck revealed the barrages she had withstood through the years, barrages she was not prepared for but was caught in the middle of anyway. Would you like anything to drink, she asked sweetly like a grandmother. No, I'm cool, thank you. Are you planning on doing a better job of cleaning up the grass clippings this week? She crossed her arms. They weren't last week? He looked in genuine confusion. No, they were not, and the hedging was uneven, and there is a plethora of crabgrass remaining. This yard is practically all weeds. I'm sorry, miss. It's Mrs. Mrs. Tierney. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I pay excellent money for this service, and I expect it to be done properly. Most weeks, it'll take you no more than ten minutes before you're done with my yard. For what I pay, I really feel ten minutes is not sufficient. I'm sorry. Isn't this your father's business? I'm sure this is not the type of work ethic he expects from you. Hey, I'm the customer. You will let me speak. I can certainly take my business elsewhere. People nowadays don't want to truly work for their money. You should learn from your father's example. I'm sure he worked very hard to build this business. That's why I and my neighbors hired the company. I'm part of the committee and we can easily... Mrs. Tierney, I apologize, intervened Mike Dempsey, who had heard the commotion from across the street. Al and we will make sure to do a much better job in the future. We will throw in an extra lawn treatment today and add more mulch around your bushes for free, too. Well, okay. Thank you. I just want to make sure my money is going to good use. You hear all the time about these landscapers that blow through your lawn or collect their money at the beginning of the month and never come back again. Well, that is not Mercer Lawn Care, I assure you. Thank you. She pulled her robe tighter and went back into her house. Al was stunned at her viciousness, to deride someone just trying to do his job. A kid like him, nonetheless. He fought off his first instinct to say forget all this and tried to keep himself composed. Mike Dempsey could sense Al's agitation and walked him over to the truck. She does that with everyone, kid. Don't take it to heart. That's how Mrs. Tierney is. Mike was a genuinely nice guy. While Al's dad drove off to check on the other work, Mike was always there with him. I'm cool, Mike. No problem. Al said as nonchalantly as possible and lit up a cigarette. Trust me, people have said much worse to me. Mike wrung his hands and stared off into the horizon, the bright sun blending him with the sky from where Al stood. You didn't deserve that. I just wanted you to know. You are a slacker, but when you put your mind to it, you do fine work. Outwork any guy that I got. Yeah, well, why did she give me such a hard time? Kid, I know this is all your heritage, but there are a lot of things you really don't know about landscaping. Sure, you can mow and mulch and lay sod fine, but it's the people. You are going to meet people like Mrs. Tierney, and there's nothing you can do about it. It wasn't that you didn't do your job or work hard or anything like that, but she will never be happy. These people, they believe when you 
when they show you happiness and satisfaction, that's the moment you relent. So they find an extra long blade of grass or stray weed that popped up the day before, but is somehow your fault, and they'll nail you for it. There's nothing you can do. You can argue or state the facts or just listen quietly, and they'll keep coming for you. Just nod politely, say you're sorry, and vow for it to never happen again. Okay, Al looked over to the house. What the hell does she have to be so miserable about? Nicest house on the block in a neighborhood practically full of mansions compared to some of the places we go. Remember that one house we did on Browse? The guy in a white beater passed out on his steps at two in the afternoon. Empty 40 bottles spilling out of his trash can. Eh, I don't know what her problem is. I often ask myself that too, kid. They got money, so they have higher expectations. I don't know. I feel like they can treat working men like trash. Yeah, nothing else to worry about but grass clippings in her driveway. Al returned to the Tierney yard and mowed as precisely as he knew how. He wanted to do something extreme, like lop off her roses or smash, smash the Virgin Mary statue, but he held himself back. He'd smoke a nice joint at the end of the day and maybe release some of that anger in the Woodstock mosh pits this summer. Anna Tierney stared out of the window at Al, still livid from her encounter. It was how anything got accomplished, by force. She did not want to be the cantankerous old woman, giving a hard time to people like Al or plumbers or contractors or even the mailman. But if she did not remain firm and direct, these people would ride the line and their laziness would come out. This was not some aristocratic way of lording over people and establishing her superiority. It, at this point, was strictly survival. It, like most aspects of her life these days, stemmed from her son, Colin. She fought for Colin to attend the regular education school and even for him to be pushed into a higher education classes. Within school, she needed to constantly monitor the teachers and paraprofessionals who would interact with Colin throughout the day. The teachers needed the sensitivity to tolerate his high-pitched vocalizations and screams, teetering on the correct balance of letting him express himself while also adapting to societal norms and that such noises in the general public would greatly disturb most people. These teachers, especially his paraprofessional one-on-ones, also needed to be cognizant of his self-injurious behavior, particularly as he got older and aware of the disturbance his noises would make, and came upon the quieter but more alarming acts of biting down on his own hand to suppress his screams while pummeling himself on the top of the head and stiffly lifting his legs perpendicularly to the chair he was sitting in. She had to intervene on many instances to switch or fire Collins one-on-one, as some would be neglectful and not stay by Collins' side. Leaving him free to inflict harm on himself or others would have a Montessori approach of letting him hit or bite himself freely as his version of a vice or self-destructive behavior that everyone had to some degree. Worse was the one-on-one firings that required no intervention on her part at all. The middle-aged ex-EMT, who appeared so loving and dedicated to Colin, like a big brother, only to lose his temper one day on Colin when he refused to drink his apple juice, and slammed his forearm repeatedly into Colin's chest, and caused Colin to cough and wheeze like a fish flopping on the ship's deck. On the other instance, when a burly former Stroman bread delivery driver pulled Colin's arm away from him while he was having one of his fits with such force, that while Colin held his arm tensely stiff, the former bread delivery man snapped a ligament in Colin's elbow. And then there was the school bus driver, who practically threw Colin down the steps when he began screaming at the precipice. 
when the bus arrived at school and Colin would have most likely cracked his head on the sidewalk if Miss Fogley wasn't miraculously there to catch him. That will conclude this episode. Join us next time as we continue Chapter 4. Thank you for listening and your continued support. Please make sure to follow on Instagram at Matthew Glasgow Author and visit Amazon for reading options for this novel and other ones as well. See you next time.